to the New Testament book of First John, and as we read together in chapter 4, verses 13 to 21, the concluding section of the fourth chapter of the book of First John. First John 4, verses 13 to 21. Where we read the words of the aged apostle John, we know that we live in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him, and he in God. And we know and rely on the the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. Love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The man who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he has given us his command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Thus reads the living and the abiding Word of God. Now, last Lord's Day evening, we were considering together from the book of 1 John a truth that is, in many ways, the high watermark of this whole great letter of John. In verses 7 through 12 last Sunday evening, when you remember that the theme of that passage was that God is love. And on the basis of that great statement uh, in this letter, John had made to us a powerful appeal to love one another on the basis that God himself has first loved us. And we saw together last Sunday evening that his appeal was on three very strong and vital grounds, that God is love in his very character and nature, and essence, and therefore we are to love one another, reflecting that very love that God is himself. And that secondly, God had declared that great love of his in his Son in a visible and tangible way, as he gave his only begotten Son for elect sinners. And then thirdly, we were to love one another because In the love that one Christian shows to another Christian, the very love of God that exists in his very nature and is expressed in his Holy Son is perfected in God's people as they manifest before an unbelieving world what that love of God really is. And you remember last Sunday evening that we left that passage, verses 7 through 12, 
with the tremendous thought in our minds of the privilege and the responsibility that rests upon us to love one another because our lives are the Bible that the man in the street day by day is reading and God's love is perfected in the sense but there in our lives reflecting the love of God is our deep and sacrificial love for one another. Now as we have come to verses 13 through 21 this evening and to the conclusion of this great chapter, the fourth in First uh, John, John takes up these themes in a further way. And you notice that he is really expanding upon what he has told us in verse 12, that God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. Now the subject before us then is the same subject as last Sunday evening. And yet it's not the same subject. Because as I've reminded you, what appears to be repetition in the book of First John is not really repetition at all. It's like climbing the spiral staircase. We may seem to be at the same point on that staircase that we were the last time. But the difference is that we've climbed higher up and there are new truths and there is new light from heaven shining upon what at first appears to be merely a repetition of the same thing again. And in these verses before us this evening, John is still focusing upon the love of God and our experience of that love and our duty and responsibility to reflect that love in the fellowship. But here are three conditions that he now gives us that shows us that to experience God's love is not a sentimental thing, beloved. It's not something that we simply feel in the realm of our emotions. But in fact, if we are abiding in the love of God and truly loving one another as we should, we will be fulfilling, John says in verses 13 through 21, three vital and necessary conditions. Now, what are they? Well, they are inward, and then they are Godward, and finally they are manward. And I have put them, you notice, on the sermon note sheet this evening in the form of continuing to live as objects of God's love, continuing to love God, the Godward aspect, and thirdly, continuing to love the brethren, the manward aspect. Now, as John presents these things to us, he is giving us really the secret of fruitful Christian living. And he is giving to us the source of Christian assurance, as we will see. And he's giving to us the basis of all Christian morality and righteousness and uprightness because he tells us before the passage has ended that if there are those in the fellowship that maintain with great affirmation, I do love God, and yet they are not loving their brethren, then John says in verse 19, but they are in fact liars. So it is not mere repetition. There are new factors as we climb this spiral staircase 
that John is taking us up as he considers this great theme of God's love. Now look with me at the first of these points. We must continue, says John, to live as objects of God's love. And this is his message in verse 13, 14, 15, and the first part of verse 16. Now look with me at these four verses. What is the theme of these four verses, or three and a half verses? Well, surely it's obvious, but there is a single theme of abiding in the love of God as the objects of that love of God. He refers to the mutual indwelling of God in the believer and the believer in God. Look at verse 13. Hereby we know that we dwell in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God dwells in him, that is in God, and he in God. God dwells in him and he in God. And then at the end of verse 16, whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. Now, what is John trying to tell us? Well, he's telling us that experiencing the love of God and showing that love to others is not something that exists in the realm of sentiment and feeling alone. But it is dependent upon our living day by day, vitally, as objects of God's love by abiding in him and he in us. And in these verses, he provides us with two forms of evidence of what this abiding means and wherein it consists. Now notice carefully what he is doing here. You see, first of all, in verse 13, The evidence that we are abiding in God and he in us is because he has given to us of his spirit. So the question before me tonight as a Christian is this. If I am continuing to live as an object of God's love, what is the evidence? The evidence is that I possess the spirit of God which he has given to me. It is because the Holy Spirit dwells in me that I know that I am in fellowship with God and in a position, therefore, to love the brethren as I should. Now, what a wonderful encouragement this is for the Christian. Who is that blessed Holy Spirit? It is the one who first brought to me the conviction of sin when I had no awareness of my need of Christ and of the Bible and of the fellowship of his church. He is the one who revealed to me the glory of the Lord Jesus as the only divine Savior of God's elect. He is the one who showed to me the necessity of the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ to cancel out my sin by his vicarious and substitutionary death upon the cross. He is the one who called me effectually to Christ and moved my heart to turn to him. He is the one who brought about in my life that grand work of regeneration, of being born again, so that 
I, who was dead in trespasses and sins, became alive to God for the first time and recognized him as my father and was able to say with new lips through a new heart, Abba, Father. And it is this Holy Spirit who continues to make real to me the presence of God, to enable me to love him as the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit and enables us to respond in love to those who are brethren and sisters in the faith. And this, says John, is the ground of assurance that I am abiding in God and he in me because he has given us of his spirit. Do you see what he's saying? Apart from the gracious activity of the Holy Spirit to open our blind eyes, to perceive the truth, to renew us inwardly, to turn us to the Savior, to keep us in the straight and narrow path, no one would believe in Christ or be able to love God and abide in his love or to love the brethren. And the evidence of our abiding in God is our possession of the blessed Holy Spirit and his possession of us. Now that is the first ground, but do you notice the second in verse 14, where John says, we have, uh, we, I'm sorry, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Now what is this but the second evidence of sound doctrine? How do I know that I am abiding in the love of God as an object of his love, not simply because the Holy Spirit indwells me, but also because the Holy Spirit has led me to embrace sound doctrine. We have seen and testify the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Is God spiritually at work in me? Then in combination with the Spirit's presence, there will go a grasp of sound doctrine alongside it. Now I say to you again this evening, my dear friends, this is a very crucial test for the Christian church today because there are so many false teachers and false doctrines and false cults around us. And they are so persuasive, as we have seen through this book of First John. They come with elements of truth in them. Their proponents are very articulate and express themselves very often very convincingly. But they are proved counterfeit, as we have seen again and again, by what? Their false doctrine when it comes to the cardinal matter of the person and the work of Jesus, such as the Gnostics in John's own day, who denied the full deity of the Lord Jesus and correspondingly denied his full humanity. And we have the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons and the Christadelphians and a great galaxy of sects and cults around us today. And we need this test to know that we are abiding as objects of God's love in the love of God. The Holy Spirit indwelling us 
leading us into a growing grasp of the importance of sound and biblical doctrine. And we can only make this confession by the Holy Spirit who keeps us abiding in the knowledge and the love of God. Now you notice the we there in verse 14 is the apostles. We have seen and testify, we who are apostles. These were the ones who had lived with the Lord Jesus Christ, had seen his life, had known that he was indeed who he claimed to be, and that the Father had sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. That redemption, in other words, arose not as some ingenious human plan, but had its source in the counsel of the Godhead itself. And it could have no other origin, the apostles declare, because no other origin would be sufficient for so grand and effective a plan as this, nor be able to accomplish so enormous a task. And John reminds us that because the apostles testify to that great truth, that the Father has sent the only Son into the world, you notice in verse 15, Whoever acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. The apostles testify to sound doctrine, but we receive their testimony. Whoever acknowledges this truth, that is proof that God is indeed in him and he in God. And it is a mark of our abiding in the love of God. Oh, my friends, what a privilege this evening to know it, to believe it, to abide in it, and all as a result of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in us and to us. So where we have come to is this. We are commanded to love the brethren. How do I know that I can love the brethren? By abiding as objects of God's love. And that's the first great condition that John gives to us. Now, the second one, you notice, follows very quickly from verse 16, the second part of the verse, through verse 18, where we read that God is love and whoever lives in love lives in God, and so forth. Now remember that John's purpose is to show what it means to experience the love of God and so to be able to show that love to others. It's not sentiment. It's not feeling, though sentiment and feeling is certainly involved. But it must inevitably be linked, says John, with loving him who first loved us. I'm abiding in God's love. That was the first thing. But the second thing is that I must continue to love God in my Christian life. Now, again, we are reminded that this love of God is a very special love. We've seen that already last Sunday evening in our study. It's different from anything in this world. And that's why the New Testament writers 
used none of the Greek words that were available to describe love in their day and age, the word eros and storge and so on, they coined a completely new word that is found in the New Testament and nowhere else in the literature of the first century world, just as those pagan words for love are not found in our New Testament. They coined the word agape, the word that expresses the very nature of God himself, the agape love of God that is a giving love that gives without expecting to receive in return, the love that expresses not an attribute of God merely, but his very essence and his nature. He is its source. And we are to love God with that quality of love and to continue in our love to God if we are indeed able to love our brethren as we should. Now that's what he's telling us. And again, there are two things about our continuing in the love of God. Do you notice in verse 17, first of all, that he says, herein is our love made perfect. Well, you may stop there and ask, how is such a thing possible? How is it possible that my inadequate love to God and therefore to the brethren should be made perfect? Now, The answer is, of course, that he is indeed speaking here, not of God's love, which is already perfect, as we know, but of our love toward God and toward one another. And what he's saying to us is that this love is made perfect in the sense of made complete. Not that it's without flaw. Our love to him and our love to our brethren sadly, is never without flaw and deficiency. But the sense is that as we continue to abide as objects of God's love, he enables us more and more to love him in the sense of a whole or mature love, a love that is growing into maturity. It's not perfect in the sense that God's love is perfect and flawless. Our love is flawed, and well we know it. But there is a growing nature in that love, a growing into maturity. It is, as John Stott, I believe, says, the state of mind and activity in which the Christian is to find himself when the love of God is truly within him expressing itself in the believer's own love and has accomplished that which God fully intends it to accomplish. We dwell in him. He brings that love to completion. Now, this is very important because, you see, it leads to the second thing that John says to us about our love for God in verses 17 and 18. It leads us, says John, to confidence in the presence of God. Or if you have a King James Version this evening, the word is boldness in the day of judgment. Now, this is very significant because confidence rather than fear is what we possess as God's people. 
It's the third time that John has used this word confidence or boldness in the letter. Earlier in chapter 3 and a little later in chapter 5 when he uses the word, it's in reference to our boldness or confidence in prayer. But here in this verse and earlier in chapter 2 verse 28, he's used the word in reference to Christ's return and God's righteous judgment upon us. And it's in that sense, of course, he's using it here. Now, you see, what he's telling us is if we continue in the love of God and God's love is growing into maturity in our lives, the fruit is that we have boldness as we think of the day of judgment that is swiftly coming upon us. Today, in our age, there's very little sense of accountability. Men desire to explain away that day of judgment, that day of accounting. They want to ignore it, but it's certain, and it's fixed, and it's unalterable, a day on which men and women will stand before the white throne of God to be judged for the things they have done in the body. And it should lead to real fear and terror in those who have not been reconciled to God. But what John tells us here is as we continue in our love to God and he enables us to grow in that love to him, it becomes a whole and mature love. It brings with it the fruit of boldness as we think of the judgment day. Now, it's not that our love for God is the ground of our acceptance, of course not, but that by the love of God, every unreasonable fear is quenched and put to rest. And we are enabled to have confidence that if God sent his Son to be the Savior of the world and drew us to himself, and has put his Holy Spirit in us, and is perfecting our love to him and to one another, then he will, of course, allow nothing to destroy that unique relationship that we have with him. Is it his work that is going on in my life? Then how is it conceivable that he will in that day say to me, I never knew you, depart from me into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. No, says John, he will allow nothing to destroy that eternal relationship that he has established with the believer. Now isn't that a tremendous confirmation to us in our continuation in the love of God, that we have boldness in his presence in the day of judgment. Now, you, do you notice before I leave this that at the end of verse 17, he tells us that great truth, that this is because God looks at us as he looks at his own beloved son, as he, that is Christ, is in this world, so are we in this world. In other words, though we are still in the world, 
we are looked upon by the Heavenly Father with the same acceptance that he looks upon his own dearly beloved Son. And that gives us confidence in the day of judgment, reposing in the love of God, the child of God grows into maturity and need not fear, because in fear there is bondage. Now thirdly, you notice, the third condition is the manward condition. We looked at the inward condition. We looked at the Godward condition that John gives us. Thirdly, there is the manward condition in verses 19 through 21 that we are not only to continue in the love of God and continue as objects of God's love, but we are to continue in our love for the brethren. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hate his brother, says John, he is a liar. The truth is not in him, and so forth. Well then, how do we experience and continue in the love of God and love for one another? Not only in the inward condition being fulfilled, not only in the Godward condition being fulfilled, but now in the manward condition being fulfilled. Now the theme of these verses, you notice, is your brother. Twice in verse 20, and once in verse 21. And I want you, as I finish this evening, to notice three things uh, from these three concluding verses of the chapter. And the first is that we are able to love our brethren in the Lord because God has taken the initiative in first loving us. Amen.